to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, episode one seven. 8, February the 26th, 2021, and you need to unmute yourself, Mark, before you can chat to me, so get into that, and welcome to everybody, welcome to our new subscribers, and a shout out to one of our sponsors, Mark, Specialised Animal Nutrition, Oxbow, throw it down the throats, That's that should be their um, motto, Mark. Put it down the mouths of those bunnies and their rabbits and, and get their gut, get your gut going. Get your gut going. I'm How great, you, Brendan. How are you? I'm all right. You know, some of these weeks get a bit tiring and some are a bit tiring, more tiring than other weeks. And this week I was middling. I was in between, <laughs> a little bit tired and not too bad. Some really interesting cases and uh, – which keep you going. It's. I think we're lucky, aren't we, that we deal with all the animals we do deal with and see all those different species, and we're not stuck in an office or in a in a factory putting widgets on what's its faces and um, spending an eight-hour shift clocking in and clocking out. So I think we're lucky, and I forget to. Uh, Real, appreciate that, Mark, and and you've got to live in the moment. We are very we? lucky, and you do have to live in the moment. And I've said this I'm probably on the podcast before, Brendan, but I think one of the wonders of our profession, I think that the world has become more insular and people have become more distant, and we as veterinarians have a very special privilege in that we get close to people much more easily. People trust us. The um, authority and respect our profession holds means that we get to um, get a window on people um, that other people don't. They tell us things and trust us. And with that goes an emotional toll. And sometimes because of those emotions, people get upset. Um, but the privilege remains, even if we've got to deal with those other things, Brendan. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. We are very, very lucky. So why do you think that happens, that people sometimes tell their life story <laughs> to us? It's a bit like when you go to the hairdresser, although it takes two minutes at home for me these days, But um, or your certain professions or, or, or jobs, Mark. Um, I used to find that if I was started a conversation on a – on an aeroplane, remember them when we used to travel. That you chat to somebody there, one of the, one of the, um, one of the, um, um, one of the. I was going to say air hostess. It shows you how old I am, Mark, isn't it? <laughs> um, one of the. What do you call them? You call them. <laughs> Just go with air hostess. It's so funny. No, no, no! We can't say that. It's it's not only sexist; it's the wrong thing. Um, it's our our what, what's that? What's I don't know. Steward, Stu- steward, the head of the, the steward, um, uh, the team. Yes. Well, if I I struck a, up a conversation with them, apart from them telling me off for calling them yes. an air hostess, 
it's amazing what sort of things um, come out of their mouth and come out of my mouth. And um, it's a bit of an unloading, isn't it? Maybe it's that whole bit about a potential stranger that you may never see again, that um, you're stuck with them in a flying tin can for a while and you you tell them things that perhaps you shouldn't tell them. I don't think it's, I, I, But it should be different for vet clinics, shouldn't it? Um, because we're, you know, we're seeing the I, client. I, my theory is that um, we as a profession are great listeners. We, we have to listen um, actively. We have to solicit history. And I reckon that for many people in the world, there is often no one else in their life who listens to them as avidly and as much detail as their veterinarian does. Um, I reckon that it's quite possibly for many people the pinnacle of being listened to when they go to the vet. And um, it gives them great... Uh, gratification, great. There's a release of endorphins and keflin and enkephalins when they connect. When they feel that connection, even if we're talking about um, something that um, you know is fairly generic to us, to them, it's it's very personal because it's their pet, and we're paying them the respect of listening to their perspective. I think that's a unique thing in many people's lives and um and it is easy for some people to misplace that um that uh uh, um sense that someone is listening to me um uh and um and and uh maybe and it is a thing as veterinarians we've got to manage um that circumstance so that people don't misplace the the sensation and think that it's um it's more than someone just listening to them, um yeah. And I, I, I so do you think? Do you then think with COVID and all the car park consultations, etc., and consultations from afar that 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 might be one of the reasons why there's sometimes, thank goodness, not very often in our clinic, um, some tension between the clients and the vets because they're not having that face to face. Um, private yep. chat I, and I, discussion I think, with the vet. And look, I think it's interesting that I'm sure there's a uh, a spectrum. I think there will be very, very good veterinarians who are great listeners, but they're all business and they don't touch on, you know, any personal um, connections at all. I, on the other hand, find it very easy to, you know, talk about um, – about Sarge or some other pet and and drift into Sarge's anxiety because um, there are some health issues at home um, and um, and that then you know um, only takes a couple of minutes but that's something where maybe um, that person hasn't had a chance to talk about those things to anyone else and so that paramedical the fact that some of those medical things are understood by veterinarians and treated with significant empathy i think is a a, a, um, a practice building thing but i think you're right i think covid has and the uh, curbside consult um, has changed that dynamic and and uh, reset the the listening barometer and um and to some clients it's um it's not as comfortable as it once was 
So that's why you charge so much, Mark, for the psych- psychology, the, the psychiatric consultation as well. <laughs> oh, I um, don't charge. As the, as the worming. <laughs> charge more for the worming. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, there's no good segue there, Mark. I'm going to jump into. Do you have any email? And uh, actually, we do have. We should have. <laughs> we are doing one very good massively prep, prep organised podcast this week. <laughs> very good prep. I need to discuss with you after this, um, after we're off air, about a potential, a potential topic, a potential interview, Mark. So remind me. And I think I was going to. But I'm going to jump into the. I was going to say we've got yes, a few go potential interviews lined up. Um, uh, there's there's a few people we'd like to talk to. So um, so I put it out there to our listeners that um, they won't have to put up with just my boring droll monotone voice on its own bouncing off your hilarity um there will be some other voices uh on our podcast over the next few weeks let's hope there are mark we better get organized good oh, so my first news story the the iberian lynx is flourishing mark it's good to see something flourishing and this week our main topic is our news stories we're trying to catch up with some news and i've titled this one Good News because they're mostly good news stories, these ones, um, to try and lift us up a little bit, Mark. So this is, I forget, oh, this was from Euro Weekly News, Mark, um, one of the um, international news organisations that I occasionally look at. Two decades ago, there were fewer than 100 of the Iberian lynxes alive and they developed a fantastic little fantastic little um, Life Plus program, it was called, with assistance from the European Union. And now, Mark, the numbers in Spain and Portugal are over 900. So 100 to 900, that's fantastic. It is fantastic. And Miguel, Miguel, Miguel's very, the retired director of the Lynx Life program, is, is very proud. If someone told me 20 years ago that we would achieve such results, I'd say they were out of their mind, he said. So he's, he's very happy now. So I think the program has been so successful, Successful, according to this article, the species has spread well beyond the 100 original square mile release area and they've established populations in Span- various Spanish regions, Mark, Andalusia, Castilla-La Mancha and Extremadura and across the border in southern Portugal. They're still classified as endangered but they've moved off the critically endangered list for the first time in years. And, you know, they they are pretty um, spectacular animals, aren't they, Mark? The, the, the lynxes um, with those little, those little ears, with those little tufts on the end of the ears that they have. Um, yeah, and um, good on them, Mark, good on them for the, the um, captive breeding program and the, um, I presume they're doing habitat um, establishment and, and um monitoring and radio collar collar tracking etc it's good news so that's my first news story mark it's a good news story it's better than good it's a great news story brendan do you think that um one of the things i always am fascinated fascinated by with lynx and with servals and other wild cats the smaller wild cats is they're so much like the cats in our homes they aren't isn't the echo of um of uh, our domestic cat, isn't it strong in these um, 
these small wild cats and particularly looking at the eyes in those um, lynx photos, yes. they just you, you shave off those whiskers and ear tufts and that cat's in my lounge room. Yes, yes. They are, yes, what more can I say about that? Yes. Um, well, my first story, are, my first news story is yes. um, uh, it's taken uh, – Is it a good it, news is, story? Well, yes, I think it's a good news story. Um, uh, Continue it's, uh, uh, This one's been across many of um, the uh, – um, the mainstream media. Um, uh, it's a story about uh, the, the, well, a newly described and discovered species of chameleon from Madagascar. Um, and the, 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 the reason this uh, little lizard makes such a uh, big news splash um, is because uh, Brookiesia nana um, is uh, the, the male is as an adult, measures in at a snout vent length of only 13.5 millimetres. Um, and this uh, this smashes the previous record for the world's smallest lizard, um, another member of the Brookiesia family from Madagascar, by a full 1.5 millimetres. Um, so that's it's, – it, it's just – it has the, I suppose, the plus that there's the discovery of a new species um, and also the plus that these lizards are incredibly, unbelievably cute um, and there will be a whole bunch of images of them on fingertips all around the world. Um, the uh, research group that made the discovery um, had to... Um, you know, they're, they're well camouflaged amongst the fallen leaves of the Madagascan, uh, Madagascan forest um, and they had to get down on their hands and knees. They did one of the specimens they found, they did a CT scan um, and <laughs> yes, <it's laughs> hilarious. found that it had two <laughs> eggs. Um, the male, they had a close look obviously with magnifying glasses and they did comment on its well-developed genitals, um, the hemipenes, as we know, as we all know they're called in uh, lizards. Um, and, uh, geez, uh, Brookiesia nana, while, lays, while that lizard lays claim to the uh, record for the smallest um, a lizard in the world. I think if it had a choice of bragging about um, the records it would like to have, you know, it, the record that it's broken, that it would like most widely publicised, the fact that one-fifth of its body weight is is devoted to genitals, that might be the thing it wants uh, on the headlines, I think, Brendan. So... They don't mention its body weight, do they, Mark? I, might, I wonder how many grams um, it, it weighs, and so how many tenths of a gram that ends up being um, those genitals. And good on um, Frank Glore, um, who's the part of the international team. He sounds like a, a, a villain <laughs> off James Bond, doesn't he? <laughs> to me, um, he, he helped classify the new species. But yeah, this, it's a pretty amazing photo. They had the, the one that the main photo that's. Uh, out there, um, which is on the tip of a finger or a thumb, there isn't it? Um, on um, yeah, they're tiny. 
how the hell did what they find did they the muck? And, how uh, big is their how, town? So many how questions. They, how are they going to track them? <laughs> Which, we need to get onto no, Microchips no. Australia and see what sort of tracking device we can put around this animal. Um, 13.5 millimetres long. I think they're going to be struggling, Mark. Um, yeah, I think they'll be going to be struggling. Um, well, I think I'm going to – it is a good news story, Mark. That is a good news story. My next one is a – it's a very good news story, Mark. I've got You're another good news roll. story. And it's about – it's, well, with a tinge of oh. a question mark in it, Mark. I've got a question mark for this one. Elizabeth Ann, it's about – the first cloned ferret, the first black-footed ferret that was being cloned, Mark. Um, so US scientists have successfully cloned the black-footed ferret using frozen cells from a long-dead animal. They created the cells from Willa, W-I-L-L-A, a black-footed ferret who lived more than 30 years ago, Mark. Um, so according to the the, the researchers, the research is pre preliminary, preliminary, but it is the first cloning of a native endangered species in North America, and it, prom has, it provides a promising tool for continued efforts to conserve the black-footed ferret. And I've sort of followed the black-footed ferret recovery um, program, Mark, um, when, when they were down to, I think, less than, well, less than 100, it was... At that stage in the early 80s or so, it was the most endangered um, mammal on earth, Mark, um, and they did an amazing recovery program where they were releasing hundreds of black-footed ferrets into the wild, wild about 20 years ago, um, twenty years later than that. So so my question is, Mark, you know, why are they cloning it and um, what are your thoughts about cloning, doing the Jurassic Park and, and cloning animals from the past and recovering animals that have been extinct, should we be doing it? No. <laughs> That's an emphatic no, no there, Mark. Um, would you like to expand um, I, on that? I think, the, the, I think I've mentioned this before. My concern, I, I don't, I'm not against... Um, this sort of conservation effort, I really worry that it detracts our attention. It, it moves our attention away from the main game and gives us false hope. It's great, and I'm perfectly happy for it to happen in the context of massive amounts of money being poured into habitat protection and restoration. Um, I think that um, that these stories is wonderful as they are and amazing, the science behind them is amazing, they, they lend false hope uh, if there's nowhere for these animals to go and the circumstances that lead to them being threatened are unchanged. The other thing that worries me about the repro technology stuff is that uh, my window on assisted reproductive technologies. So situations like um, artificial incubation of reptile eggs, uh, artificial incubation of bird eggs and hand rearing of birds, artificial insemination in birds, um, uh, artificial reproductive technologies in domestic dogs, is that I don't, we can end up with a 
living, breathing offspring from those technologies. But I don't know that they are always uh, wild environment viable. Does that make sense, Brendan? I think that a lot of the animals that are produced from these technologies have... uh, have issues that might mean they're not going to contribute significantly to wild populations. Um, and You're saying they're a lost cause. That's what you're saying, Mark. That's what you it? say about me often. Well, there's a little addendum to this story, Mark. The last paragraph of this particular story I found very curious or even curiouser. Last U.S. summer, about 120 ferrets at Colorado's National Black-Footed Conservation Centre were injected with the experimental COVID-19 vaccine, Mark, because they were feared to be highly vulnerable to the disease. So there's not many of them out there. They are actively trying to increase the numbers out there in the wild, and yet they they injected 120 of them with the COVID-19 vaccine because they think they might be more susceptible. Um, And... And we, we know the stories about ferrets generally being potentially um, susceptible to COVID. So why didn't they just choose some of the ferret farm ferrets to um, play around with this um, experimental COVID-19 vaccine, Mark? It's a very fair question, Brendan. Very, very fair question. Well, I just... Destroyed my good news article Look, I think, there, I think we've got to um, come that, back but, to the um, fact that they have brought uh, – you, you were quite right in highlighting at the beginning that they brought this species back from the brink. So overall, it's a good, it's a good story. They've um, done well. And it is pretty amazing that they can pick up some cells that were frozen why, or, why, why did 30 they do years that? ago and they've cloned. Why did they not get cells? That's right. Is it? Is it – see, I can see – um, it's almost it almost is Jurassic Park. Let's see how far back we can go in half cells. We're up to thirty years now. Can we get back to hundred yes. years? Then woolly mammoths. Then we're going to. <laughs> I just I. I'm, I'm, Who knows? Like I, <laughs> let's jump on to the next news story, Mark. Um, what have you got? You've got a. Well, you've got a sort of a. Well, it's a good news story. But a sad, sad story, but yeah, it's good yeah. news. Yes. Well, it's, I feel pers- I told you as we were um, uh, perusing these news stories, uh, doing the massive several hour preparation that we do, um, that um, I was uh, I did a uh, an externship, an informal externship at Taronga Zoo, and I did some work with the uh, the Sun Bear collection there. So I feel um, a bit personally collect- connected, and probably given my age and the time that I did do that. It's quite likely, I think, that um, that uh, the particular animal we're talking about today, I came across. And um, so we're talking about uh, a little um, rescue cub, Mr. Hobbs, um, that was uh, trapped in a cage in Cambodia, and he was destined for one of the uh, wild meat markets. Um, and of course, a uh, um, a, an, a, an Australian, an Australian businessman named John Stevens rescued Mr. Hobbs uh, from a restaurant. Um, I don't want to go in the deta- into the details 
oh my goodness, of the soup, of how they make the soup. Uh, but he was not going to, uh, he was not going, it was, he was going to be chopped up into little bits and served as soup. Um, Mr. Stevens contacted a Perth woman, Mary Hutton, who had become, who had begun the fledgling Free the Bears movement in 1993. And um, he offered to uh, help relate relocate three sun bears to Australia um, and the rescued sun bears from uh, Cambodia ended up at Sydney's Taronga Zoo where he lived peacefully until he passed away at the ripe old age of 25 just this year. Um, And so I think uh, that the awareness that, um, that has arisen from the presence of sun bears in Australia and the at uh, at Taronga in particular um, has catapulted the tiny free the bears charity um, and the plight of the sun bears in Southeast Asia um, into the forefront of uh, um, of um, st- uh, conservation mindset and um, and uh, they. Immediately after the the announcement and the installation of those bears in Taronga, um, there was a outpouring of um, support for the rescue organisation, um, and they counted um, just in the first few days. Um, there was forty five thousand dollars donated, um, uh, enabling the start of a rescue sanctuary to be built in Cambodia. So, um, Mr. Hobbs. Um, was um, was a like a, a signpost to um, the the awareness of the plight of the sun bears and facilitated um, those donations that set up a, a sanctuary. So he's a, a well heralded heralded animal, um, and he unfortunately had to be euthanized um, at the end of his life. His quality of life had. Um, had deteriorated, but um, of course, everyone that was in contact in contact with him was shattered, and uh, and and everyone was so proud that he'd touched so many people's hearts and set the sun bear in the conservation world um, as a species that need needed things done for it. Um, what uh, the, Dr. Hutton estimates the money raised from the momentum generated by Mr. Hobbs' story has saved thousand sun bears in Cambodia. It is a good news story, Mark, and some very cute photos there of Mr. Hobbs when he was rescued as a baby there, a little cub, yes. Excellent. Very positive, very good news story there, Mark. Good choice, good choice. My next one is a, well, it's, it's it's not good, it's not bad news, it's an interesting story, I think. It's about spitting cobras and I've been spat at by a spitting cobra, Mark. Oh, I haven't. Where did that happen? Well, let me say it's at a wildlife park um, that I used to do work for and I haven't been there for a while. Um, So they had some spitting cobras and unfortunately at one stage I had to examine the oral cavity of a spitting cobra. So that was a bit of a challenge there and I have an interesting photograph or two maybe i should put it for the you um, definitely should i um, title, title slide for this of me wearing a full face mask um before 
but they were trendy with COVID um, when we were catching this spitting cobra. So the interesting thing about the spitting cobras were um, that they are very, very accurate at spitting. That I think they see a, you know, that they can notice eyes and a face. Um, so they're very good at um, directing their venom. And if you could tell at this wildlife park, if a group of children had gone through, school kids had gone through, and they'd been hassling the cobras on display because they'd be knocking the window or whatever and you could see where they'd spat their venom venom right at the height and you could tell you know oh they were you know year six kids in this week because the venom's at a low height or they were they were um you know teenagers or whatever because of where they did it but yeah so that they are pretty accurate at accurate at their spitting so Venom, so back to the news story, spitting cobra venoms evolved to cause extreme pain. And I found this fascinating, Mark. An international team has been looking at spitting cobra venom and the composition of it from three groups of cobras, and they demonstrated the defensive mechanism had developed as a dominant genetic trait, Mark, that the spitting cobra venom causes extreme pain as their main form of defense um, and the fangs of the snakes are adapted to spray venom as far as two and a half meters and i can certainly attest to that and the venom is directly aimed at the face specifically the eyes causing intense pain and can lead to the loss of eyesight and they think the snakes had independently evolved the ability to spit their venoms at their enemies, and they tested how the venom components affected the pain-sensing nerves. And it's they realised that spitting copper venoms, yeah, are more effective at causing pain than their non-spitting <laughs> counterparts. And they looked at all the different enzyme toxins. Um, so the interesting thing about this is that they're going to they're, – they're studying pa- – their pain researchers – Professor Vetter and Dr. Robinson, and they're studying the molecular mechanisms of pain with the goal of developing new and more effective painkillers, hence their interest in spitting cobra venom and the fact that these pain-causing toxins could be useful tools to help us understand pain signals at a molecular level. So I find this really fascinating, this. But, yeah, I I, I did find it quite quite. Um, challenge in dealing with uh, spitting cobras and it was pretty amazing um they have a little we'll link to the story of at gurus.com there's, there's a little youtube video of a spitting cobra um spitting its venom mark so the amazing adapt adaptation i think that is a good news story i think um we know that um lots of research goes in the into toxinology um because those uh those components of venom do provide a new new set of molecules and we're always on the lookout particularly for analgesic uh, p- potential shaped molecules um, and um, and I do find it paradoxic that the um, the, the relatively sadistic study which works out what causes more pain um, the ultimate aim is to relieve pain altogether um, so good story Brendan Anything with analgesia in it, that's a good one in my book. And I think you've got our final news story, which is a good one as well, Mark. And what is well, that? Well, you know how I love turtles, Brendan. Um, and this story tells about um, the protection um, of, um, of our sea turtle eggs. Um, so in 
the uh, Wick Country in Western Cape York, um, at the very northern part of the Australian mainland. There's a lot of um, of the rare uh, sea turtles uh, uh, nesting on those beaches. But unfortunately, the the difficult thing is that um, as soon as they nest, many of the um, animals, the dingoes, the goannas, um, but mm, the damn pigs, the feral pigs that have been introduced, root around and um, eat the eggs before they have a chance to develop. And, of course, when you have uh, um, animals like pigs that are so good at smelling those things out, um, it can have a significant um, effect on the on the population. So the traditional owners of the country in which those uh, um, green turtles, flatback turtles and hawks but bill turtles nest, um, they've been um, uh, working as rangers to try and limit this. They mark the nest um, with pegs. They put green mesh, the you know, that sort of um, uh, garden uh, mesh over the top, and it's, and it's pretty effective at um, preventing those predators from easily digging up the nests. Um, and in addition, they did some work we, uh, aerial work, um, aerial culling from helicopters and, uh, and checking the eggs on a regular basis. And now there's an AI-based program which has been developed which can analyse huge numbers of aerial photographs of beaches to identify the evidence of turtle nests and their predators. And so this um, artificial intelligence, this computer learning, um, can like uh, can direct the, uh, the rangers to much, much more efficiently manage those eggs. Um, CSRO research scientist Justin Perry has been working hand-in-hand hand with the WIC people on these management programs for 13 years, um, and he said a two-year study at the start of the program revealed it was only pigs that were eating turtle eggs, and it was clear there was a disconnect between the feral pig control program and turtle protection. So um, that's led to um, the the uh, you know the helicopter culling, but it also highlighted the fact that um, only a small number of pigs out of each group had become experts at finding and destroying the nests, but they would do it relentlessly. Um, these you know they've titled these pigs the intelligent pigs in the in the herd um, often older boars they knew that they could hide behind uh, um, clumps of vines and avoid the culls while the the helicopters were buzzing around um, and so it wasn't a simple matter of how many pigs you would kill um, but it was actually about which specific specific pigs um, so the AI technology um, that gave them the the uh, ability to identify tracks so they knew where the turtle eggs were laid and then um, they could identify using long-range drones, um, not just helicopters. Um, they could take these photos and uh, crunch the images to identify the sites of significant predation thereby identifying the, the pigs causing the most problems and make a huge impact on the number of eggs that were damaged. I want to be a drone pilot, Brendan. I want to 
be doing this sort of work where I sit in a tent in the bush and guide a, uh, a, a drone over some sort of bush. Probably this sort of work would be great, flying it up and down the beach, looking for uh, spore, for tracks, for wild indications of wildlife so that the cameras, the AI could interpret it and help save the baby turtles. Do you think I've got a chance? Well, you are very good at droning on, so you're halfway there already, Mark. <laughs> I just <laughs> toss them up there and you hit them yes. out of the park. <laughs> it's a very good news story, that one. I was just amazed at how, that simple technique of that mesh, the picture of that, yeah, that like garden green um, plastic mesh to help the nest insights um, and, and stopping those those um, wild pigs from from getting those eggs. Although I wonder how many of them, once the turtles hatch and there's a picture of one of the little turtles um, heading out in between the, 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 the bits of mesh there, Mark, I wonder how many of them get eaten at that age as well. Um, do you think they predate upon them as well or they just prefer just well, the eggs? I, I'm, I'm sure they do. I'm sure those, um, those hatchlings are preyed upon as well. And we've all seen images of ghost crabs darting along the beach, grabbing um, turtles heading to the water. And, um, and we've, when we went to uh, Sandakan in uh, um, northern Borneo, um, the turtle island there is a government-run government reserve. Um, and, um, and it was interesting how they used the same they would um, identify the nest. They would put a wire. Um, uh, they'd put the the green mesh over the top, but they'd also put like a. You know, in Australia here, we have these tree guards, the wire tree guards, and they would have a similar sort of circular, cylindrical wire structure to put on them, yes. mainly for the water monitors. I think were the biggest problem there. Um, but then they would hatch them out. Um, Either on the beach, collect them up in the, the 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 cage, and then take them out and let them go in the ocean. And I always wondered whether um, whether that helped, whether more um, turtles getting past the ghost crabs, the pigs on the beach, and the um, and the fish in the shallows, um, or whether it's sort of like a moth emerging from a, a cicada emerging from a shell that they have to do it a certain way before they are tough enough to survive. I don't know, Brendan. I don't know. I don't know about um, whether the pigs eat them as soon as they pop their head out past the green mesh. They don't because it's a good news story this week, Mark, and we're going to stick with that. And I think with that, we're just about out of here, aren't we, Mark? Um, any final words? No. Okay. Well, in that case, we will talk to you all next week. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Music.